If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, got a little special episode. We're celebrating 300 episodes, which just kind of blows my mind that uh, I've been doing it for this many episodes and that y'all continue to listen for this many episodes. And uh, just thank you so much for being along for the ride. And I've got a little, little special guest for this one as well. Mr. Alan Moon joins us on the show. Alan, welcome. Hey, thanks, Gabe. Yeah, man, really excited to have you here. You are one of, I mean, just my favorite designers, uh, not only because of the games that you have put out over the years and obviously Ticket to Ride and all its many iterations. It's one of my, my family's favorite games. They love Ticket to Ride New York. It's one of my kids' favorite games. But uh, as I've talked about on the show in the past, and I, and I believe I've mentioned to you as well, uh, Ticket to Ride was the favorite game of a very good friend of mine. And as he was going through cancer treatments and chemo, Ticket to Ride in a lot of ways is what kept him going. And it's a way that he was able to connect with friends and family and bring you know, people around the table while he was going through the darkest time of his life. And um, and so you will always have a special place in my heart as the designer of that game. And I'm willing to bet you didn't think, you know, back in like 04, 05, when the game was coming out, that you're like, I bet people are going to play this in their hardest moments. And it's, you know, I don't know that you thought about that, but as, as it turns out, I know lots of people have found a lot of solace and a lot of happiness playing that game. And have you heard other stories? Have people shared with you other stories of, of your games kind of being that game for them in hard times? Um, I have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, that's just overwhelming. It's, it's great to get emails and, and see posts about stuff like that. Um, actually one of my, sort of not quite on the same track, but one of my favorite posts was a guy who had gone to play, uh, games with his grandmother one night and, uh, they played tickets ride. And the next day he played with his, his, his kids and his grandmother and, and, then he came home uh, and his grandmother called him and said, next time you come over, you bring that train game back. And I was like, you know, that's you can't you can't make that stuff up and you can't really, you know, ever hope to have something be that meaningful to people. But that, that really mattered to me. And I had a group of nuns one time uh, write to me and say that how, that was all they were playing at the convent, that they were playing Tickets to Ride. And I was like, I didn't know nuns played games, but you know, that's great. Wow, that's awesome, man. And yeah, I've gotten you know emails in the past as well where people will say, hey, your podcast really helped me. I was going through a hard time with my wife or somebody in my family. I was at the hospital a lot and, and I would just throw the podcast on and listen and it would kind of help take my mind off of all the craziness that was going on. And I was like, wow, that's like you said, it's not something you sit down and go, I'm going to create something for people to help them in a hard time. Like, I feel like there are people that do that, that create music and all sorts of stuff to help people. But like, I'm just trying to create games and a podcast. And, but at the same time, people, they're drawn to these moments 
that they can kind of detach from the rest of the world, have some fun, enjoy being around people that they care about. And so I think as game designers, it's just something to be aware of. And I don't know that you can catch lightning in a bottle to make it happen, but it is a nice kind of happy side effect. And is it something that you have thought about more and more as you've designed more and more games? Um, you know, it's it's I, there's there's been moments in my life where, you know, I mean, sort of Ticket to Ride has, has sort of made my life exceed any kind of expectation I could have had for it. Um, and it's just... I tell people, and, and this is not being modest at all, but I tell people, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people trying to design games. And the fact that I have an evergreen, you know, hit, a big hit, it's not about 95% luck. I mean, you could, you have to do a lot of the right things, you know, put yourself in a position. You have to network and run your business and you have to have good ideas. But all of that, it really comes down to in the end, it's real luck. I mean, everything has to go right for that that big hit to to, to happen. I mean, you've got to have the company has to do the right things and promote the product and do a nice uh, production. It's just there's so many factors involved that you just can't control. And I know people say, oh, well, you know, you must have known to get right to ride was going to be a hit. And of course I didn't. I would have designed it 20 years ago <laughs> before if I'd know that. But you just never know. I mean, you just you do the best you can. And, you know, you go with your gut instinct sometimes and but you just never know what's going to happen. So I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have this game. And and it's just, you know, people ask me, you know, are you working on other stuff? And yeah, I'm always working on other stuff. But if, if I have to do some tickets to ride work, of course, I'm going to do that because I know it's going to sell. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it's just like, oh, my God, this is great. I can sit down and work on this game and make money. You know, whereas if I'm working on anything else, I just don't know whether I'm going to make money or not. And so it's it, but it's incredible. I mean, my life has has changed so much in the last the 20 years. You know, and 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 I have to say, just to be honest, like the ticket drive was part of it, and the other part was I met my wife Janet in 2002. So we got married in 2004, the year Ticket to Ride came out. So that was like an incredible year for me. And, and just like the last 20 years have just far exceeded anything I thought my life would be. Yeah. So what you're saying is she hitched her ride to the correct train. <laughs> yeah. We like to, I like to tease her about it, but you know, we, we, we had, she actually, you know, came into my life a couple of years earlier, but you know, she. To have her along for the ride or you know, have her along to enjoy yeah. the whole success thing has been great. And I think, uh, you know, without her, it wouldn't have been as amazing as it has been. Yeah, for sure. At the end of the day, no matter what you create, it really is the relationships that, that you build. And whether it's through your creativity or outside of it, it, it's the people that make everything special. And I feel like Absolutely. the more we remember that as, as humans, but also as game designers, uh, the better we we can be. And so, all right, I want to definitely dive in more to Ticket to Ride in a minute. But first, let's kind of go way back. Let's let's go back to the earlier version, you know, of, of what was happening because Ticket to Ride was nowhere near your first game. You had been designing games and around the gaming industry and doing all sorts of stuff for decades, I believe, before that. Yeah. And so yeah. let's go back to the genesis of Alan Moon getting into gaming, getting into game design, all that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it really, I mean, it started for me as a kid when, uh, you know, every Sunday was family was family day. So we went out and went to the movies or went to a museum or, you know, went bowling, whatever. And then we came home and played games in the evening. That We did that every Sunday while I was a kid. And, I mean, that just made an impression on me, obviously, that that was, that was what the whole family loved to do. So right from that point, you know, I was really involved in games. Um 
when I went to college, I joined a, a game club in New Jersey called the, it was a, actually a new club, it was called the Jersey Wargamers Club. And I'm, at that point, I was mostly playing war games with, with people and the club was mostly interested in that. Um, and, if, and what happened really pr- pretty quickly was I took over publishing this little newsletter for the, for the club. Um, and then, you know, sort of got more and more interested in games as I was in college. Um, and then I wrote to Avalon Hill and said, you know, do you need somebody to come and help work on the magazine called The General? Or do you need somebody to help with games, whatever? And I really kind of pestered Don Greenwood for a couple of years and eventually hired me to be the assistant editor of The General with the intent that I would take over as the editor. Um, so that's kind of how it all got started in terms of a career. Um, but I really feel like the foundation for that was just, you know, gaming as a kid. Um, my uncle would come and visit um, a lot. And so my uncle and my father and my brother and I would play Risk. That was like a big deal at our house. Like, you know, brother against brother. There was no brotherly love during games of Risk, you know. And that was just, that was a big deal. I mean, that and all of that kind of really influenced, you know, how I looked at games and just the enjoyment I had of games as an adult. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, all right, you got into the newsletter, you're working with Avalon Hill. And then did you work at Parker Brothers? Am I remembering that right? You worked for them? Yeah, I was at Avalon Hill for about four years. I never really became the editor of the general because as soon as I got there, I was put into this office that in the in the corner was like hundreds and hundreds of boxes. And these were all prototypes that people had submitted to Avalon Hill. And I went into Don Green and said, you know, what is all this stuff? And he says, oh, it's prototypes. Nobody's got time to look at it. And I said, can I look at it? He said, sure, do whatever you want with it, right? And so I started looking through them. And I basically took a couple of weeks and went through every one of those boxes. And I went back to him and said, some of these look pretty good. And he says, well, you know, ask people around the office if they want to work on them or not. And I said, okay. He said, he said, what do I do with the rest? He said, just send them back. And I was like, okay. You know, so here's me, like never been in the game industry before. Like, you know, I've been there two weeks and I'm making these decisions about all these prototypes. And I went around to the guys in the office and said, you know, this looks pretty good. It looks like it's sort of up your alley. Do you want to work on it? And I took a couple of them and worked on and, and that was really, so I started working on games full time at that point. And, and I didn't want to be the editor anymore. The editor, editing a magazine was hard. It was a lot of, especially back in those days, we didn't have computers and, you know, we didn't have Illustrator and InDesign and stuff. We were pasting pieces of paper with hot wax down on galleys, you know, it's like, it was incredibly hard work. So anyway, so I shifted over to, to working on games at that point. And I was at Avalon Hill for about four years. And then I went, uh, I got a job at Parker Brothers. Um, and I thought that was going to be just like heaven for, you know, for game for games. And it was really disappointing because basically they could have been selling soap or, or gasoline. It didn't really matter. It was all about marketing and promotion. And the, the game design part was just kind of like just almost like pasted on to the whole process. Just a means and, to an end. Yeah, it was really disappointing. I mean, I, I have so many stories about Parker Brothers, I could tell you, but I'll just tell you one that we were working on a, on a baseball game. It was called Starting Lineup Talking Baseball, which is I sort of wrote the document that the programmers worked from on that game. Um, but here's the stupid thing about it. It was an audio game in a visual age. So first of all, I thought that was crazy, but, you know, it was, it was okay. We were doing it. But we went into like line review meetings in Parker Brothers and every vice president in the 
company, like the vice president of accounting and personnel and all that, they're all in this line review. And I'm like, why are these people in here? <laughs> and so they'd be making ridiculous comments like, oh, the stadium should be brown, not white. You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, you can't say anything, obviously. It was like, I'd be screaming in my head, like, you know, what does this have to do with the game? And it was really frustrating. So, you know, they didn't they didn't know anything about games. They didn't really care. They were only interested, you know, and that's and as a company, obviously, they're successful that they they make big money. But it was very frustrating as a game designer to, to be in that kind of environment. So I was there a couple of years and really nothing that I ever worked on got published. I was in a video group. We were trying to come up with video games and at the time and really nothing that any of us did for two years ever came to fruition. So it was just kind of a waste. <laughs> and we all got laid off. <laughs> oh man. Was that because of these other people, the money people that were just not seeing kind of the bigger vision or like what, what led to nothing ever coming out? Yeah. I mean, I think it was just, you know, there it's so much, you know, Parker brothers and Milton Bradley and Mattel and Hasbro, there's so much about licensing. So the creative part is, is sort of an aside, you know, they, they try to get, I, I think the thing that bothers me about that is like, you could have a good game as well as a good license, but most of the time they're so focused on the license that they don't really care about the game. As long as it's my, my friend, Mike Ray used to, who worked at Hasbro for years and years, he used to call it pigs on sticks. He said, they're not really designing games. They're just putting out some, the next pig on a stick. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, that's the, and so it's it's really frustrating as a, a creative person because nobody really cares about your ideas. They just want you to to put the put out that next product, and it can be the same as the last product. It's just got another license on it, and yeah. A couple little changes, so it's you know, real frustrating. That's a good point, and unfortunately, I think it's maybe worse now than it was then because I was talking to a guy the other day about this with with TV shows, you know, stuff coming out on Netflix and Disney Plus and all that, and so much of it just seems to be content not yep. art. It's not like storytelling. It's not like, Hey, we have something to say and there's characters and then we really want to dive in and, and like get the audience to feel a certain way or have a certain experience. It's like, Oh no, we need to hit this deadline and make sure the show comes out by the fall. And you know, we're going to have these certain metrics we're going to put in. We're going to make sure we hit these checklist points, but it's just content. It's just putting stuff out into the world because, Oh, we got to have another show. It's like, wow. Right. Man. And unfortunately I feel like that's just happening everywhere but i guess maybe in the hobby side of board games it's maybe a little bit less than that it seems like licensed games are finally good and not all of them but there's a lot of good marvel games a lot of good star wars games coming out and i guess now with kickstarter and crowdfunding game found and, and other platforms you can kind of ha have an idea and say hey here's my passion here's this project i want to work on and then you don't have to be so concerned with just the content and the money making side of it and so i don't know we're in an interesting time right now but um all right, sure. so, so that's Parker Brothers. And how long were you there? I was only there about two years. And okay. then, uh, like I said, they laid off our whole division. And at that point, I was I was kind of lost and didn't really know what to do. So I, I thought, oh, okay, I'll try and be a you know an independent game designer. Um, I hired some agents, uh, a couple of people that represent me. And, uh, and that really worked out sort of predictably in the time, not very well. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, after a few years of that, I was, I was thinking like, oh man, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I decided to start my own game company called White Wind. Um, and now I what, went into that. What year is this? Um, I think this is 1990. Okay. Um, 
And I, you know, I'm very naive. I, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of business experience. And so the, you know, the result was pretty predictable that like my plan for the company was to, to we were going to produce 1200 copies of games and then sell those as limited editions and then hopefully sell the rights to another company. Well, that just didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple of games that did okay and we probably could have sold some more copies like Elfin, Elfin Roads and Santa Fe. But in general, you know, we didn't sell anything to another company for quite a few years. And so after about four or five years of that, I was pretty disheartened and uh, uh, just, you know, just as down as you could be in terms of like my career as a game designer. Um, and then, you know, I, I stopped running White Wind and I got a job at uh, FX Schmidt, which was um, the American branch of a German company. And I got a job as the, you know, in charge of, they were going to start a new game division. So I went in there to do that. And again, I really didn't know anything about producing games or as either. So I sort of learned that job. But the good news was nobody else at the company knew anything either. So I was just in there and I just found my way. And, and it was pretty fun, actually, to be on the other side, to be actually producing games and looking at uh, game designs from people. So that was a really fun couple of years. And then FX Schmidt was bought by Ravensburger, so we became FX Schmidt Ravensburger USA, and that was a really cool, uh, cool thing for me, um, just to be involved in, in a real big company like that. But at the same time, and this was now about uh, 1998. This is when Amigo, or 1997, I should say, Amigo came to me and said they really wanted to take Elfin Roads and make it a simpler version, and that's what came out as Elfin Land, and that's what won the Spiel that year. Um, and that was that was great for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, people say, oh, you know, now you have money. I didn't really I was I was so in debt at that point that, that basically got me back to zero, which was great. You know, uh, so that was one thing. But the, the other thing I remember about it was everybody saying, well, you know, it's a fantasy game. The fantasy game isn't going to win game of the year. They've never done that before. And I was like, OK, you know, but but it did. So it was it was just a huge breakthrough for me and Amigo, actually, at the time. Amigo had been just a, a much smaller company and mostly uh, with known for card games. So Alphenland sort of vaulted them into a higher category too. So that was a pretty cool year in 1998. Um, yeah. And so, man, just tell me about a, a little bit as far as your, your mentality then, because you're talking about being down and out. And I assume you wanted to quit and go work at, you know, McDonald's, go do something, go do anything else. And I've been in that yeah. position where it's like, I'll just go work at Starbucks and forget the rest of the stuff. And so yeah. tell me about just kind of your mental state, because like if, if that doesn't happen, then were you going to leave? Or were you going to go do something else, go a different in industry? Yeah, I mean, basically, when I went to work at FX Schmidt, I, I had to get a real job. I've been working as a waiter on and off, and, and I didn't mind being a waiter. I, I got to pretty much set my own hours. But the problem with that is they asked you to work every shift. So there was a year I worked every single day from Valentine's Day through Thanksgiving. I worked every single day and they'd ask, you, they'd ask me to work every shift. And, you know, I would just do it like, okay. But then I, I'd go home and I didn't feel like designing games after working for eight, 10, 12 hours. It's just, it's just too hard. It's too draining. So, you know, I didn't have a bad life. Um, so I took the job at FX Schmidt to kind of get out of that circle thinking that like I could do that job and be back involved in games. But of course, that was also, you know, it's a full-time job and there was travel involved and it was still hard to design games. So I was there a couple of years and then, 
you know, Robinsberger. But but yeah, when I took that job at FX Schmidt, I really thought my life as a game designer was pretty much over at that point. And, and you know, I wasn't sure how I was going to proceed. So after a couple of years, you know, the Elfenland got me back into it. And then I stayed a couple of years at Robinsberger. And then I, I said, okay, I'm ready. I've got a little money saved up. I'm, I'm ready to go try being an independent game designer again. Um, so at that point, I was sort of rejuvenated a little bit, you know, after some, some down years of thinking about it. Um, so then, you know, then I entered sort of the next phase. Of, and one of the things that happened is I, I hooked up with Aaron Weissbloom um, and we started, you know, working together on games. And that was really, you know, that was a huge production uh, time for me. Like we did a lot of games together. I was working with Richard Borg a little bit. So I really produced a lot of games between, say, 1997 and 2002. So that kind of got me back. Now, also, after you won the Spiel, did you have companies approaching you and saying, hey, would you design a game for us? Do you have anything else you've been working on? I mean, I feel like that gives you a lot of notoriety and, and people want to work with you at that point. Is that what you found? Um, actually, no. I think I think lots of people think that's what happens. And I, I would say companies, you know, I mean, nowadays, like, I would say that still doesn't happen. Like companies don't ever really come to me and say, oh, I really want a game from you. You know, there's just too many other people out there and, and they're presented with so many games. I don't think, you know, maybe, maybe some other game designers have that experience. I have very rarely had anybody come to me and say, Hey, I really want a game from you. Or if I have, it's like, you know, a real startup company that, you know, that I, I mean, my, my philosophy about games now is like, okay, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, we're, you know, we want a game for you. It's like, okay, well, I could do that, but it's like my my whole career has been based on relationships. So I, I'm much more likely to work with people that I know already and that I really enjoy. And like the companies I'm working with now, you know, I just have great relationships with. And and I just, that's that for me is more important than any kind of, you know, opportunity that some other company might might offer me. And, you know, sometimes a company would come to me and says, you know, we can give you $10,000 guaranteed. And I'm like, well, when I was starting out in 1990, <laughs> in 1990 that $10,000 would have been huge. But now it's like, I don't care about that. What I care about is, is you know, the the quality of the, the relationship and designing and developing that game together. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm just like, again, I'll go back to, I'm really fortunate that I have the ability to do that. Like, somebody comes and offers me money. I, I'm not, that's not the big factor for me. I want, I'm, I'm despite what, what appearances may seem, cause it's been a long time since uh, ticket drive one, but I'm, I would love to win the spiel again. And, and that's a real motivating factor for me. And I think for every game designer, like oh, yeah. you want to win the game of the year. That's just huge. And now I'm working with Bobby West a lot. He's a, he's a young guy and he's one of my best friends and, you know, we spend a lot of time together and, and I know that's his dream. And, and I would like to make it come true, you know, for him and me at the same time. That would just be awesome. So. Yeah, that's great. And Bobby, he's a great guy. I've, I've met him, run into him at several conventions and hung out with him, had lunch with him. Great guy. And uh, yeah, that's that's a good one to, to be working with, man. And and so, OK, well, I guess that's kind of the is that something that you would suggest other game designers do? You, you just mentioned three names right there of people you've been working with that kind of helped you produce more games and, and produce good games. Would you say that game designers in general need to at least think about co-designing? Cause I know a lot of times we get isolated, especially during the pandemic, you do things on your own, but what would be your advice as far as working with other, other designers? 
Yeah, I, th I think it's a great thing. I mean, the biggest part is, you know, if, if you're stuck, then you have somebody to talk to and kind of bounce ideas off. And you can generally get past that, you know, like writer's block, you would say as a writer, but you can generally get by that and just talk about ideas. Um, but I think it, it also, you know, it matters, you know, who you have the relationship with. Because, I mean, I, I've tried to work with quite a few designers and a lot of times it just doesn't work. It's just a personality thing or it's just a design philosophy or different goals, whatever. Um, so, yeah, but I've been fortunate where I've worked with probably half a dozen people that I've really enjoyed. Um, Bobby and I work with Daryl Andrews. Um, he's another good friend of ours. And the three of us, you know, three of us get along great. And, and I think it, we really complement each other. So it, it becomes it becomes really fun. And it sort of also gives you a kind of good type of pressure that like, you know, you want to succeed for the group as you know, more yeah. than just yourself anymore. So it's good. I, I definitely think people should try it, but don't get, don't get fixated on it. It's like, if it's not working, then just, you know, either find somebody else to work with or go back to working on your own. But yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think lots of people are, are co-designing these days. I see like, you know, groups of people all over the place on boxes. So yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up some really good points. And I love the the team analogy. It's like, I don't want to let these people down. Right? Yeah, I, you awesome. know, if I let myself down, fine. You know, if I didn't hit a deadline or if I didn't do what I need to do, okay, I can just kind of not like myself for a little while. But when I let other people down, it just feels so much worse. And what oh, a great, yeah. great motivator to, you know, get things done. Okay, so let's let's go back. You're getting into game design, full time, freelancing, you win the spiel, then what? Because that's around, that's early 2000s around that time. And so Days yeah. of Wonder, tell me when Days of Wonder comes around and, and that relationship begins. Yeah. So after, I, I think I left, um, I left Robinsburg, I think in 2001 or late 2001, 2002, about when I met Janet, actually. Um, and then I started, I went back to, you know, designing games with, with Aaron and by myself. And I was, I took some big European trips where I took like tons of prototypes over and showed them to lots of companies. And one of those trips was, was really huge. It's where I sold Das Amulet, Capital and San Marco and several other games all at the same time. And that was a big year for, for me, 2001, all three of those games got nominated for game of the year. And one of them would have won, except that was the year of Carcassonne, which was, you know, which was great for Carcassonne, but it wasn't great for me. It was a real bummer. Uh, so there's only been a few of those years where there's been sort of like this outright favorite that you know is going to win. So that was just that was just really unlucky to have all three of those games come out in that year. Um, but anyway, so there was a lot of games going. I was really showing a lot of prototypes and working, you know, really working full time on games and having having you know, success in terms of being able to sell games for sure. I mean, one of my favorite game designs um, I also sold on that trip, and it was a game I sold in 10 minutes. I basically played the game for 10 minutes, and the publisher said, I'll, you know, I'll give you a contract. I said, really? And that only ever happened. That had never happened before that. I said, okay, so we signed. And so the really sad story here is that that was, I mean, I really like this game and it still exists, but it's sort of past its time now. And what happened was six months later, 9-11 um, happened and the game had been about dinosaurs knocking down skyscrapers, mm. which you've probably seen in a couple of games since then. But that again, so they didn't want to do the game when, you know, 9-11 happened, obviously. And so it never got published. The next year we talked about it and they thought it was still too soon. And so it never happened. And 
And I was really bummed. It was a game called Creatures Crush Chicago. And actually, but you could have called it anything like Dinosaurs Destroyed Dresden or, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, there were lots of great names for it. But um, yeah, so I saw that in like 10 minutes. I was like, I was so thrilled when I left that publisher that day. I was like, that was great. <laughs> and actually on that same trip was when I sold, um, when I sold Clippers um, to Eurogames. I, I was down in their office in Konstanz, Germany. And we played the game and he says, I'll give you a contract for it. And I, and the, I was really torn because I had shown it to a bunch of other companies who were sort of interested. And I was like, well, what the heck, you know, it's a bird in the hand, you know? So I just sold that. And I was super excited about that game until they made a tragic mistake in the production. They did these little markers that should have been, you know, some sort of substantial size. And they came out the size of like, I don't know, an eighth of an inch little markers they had to put on the board. And I just remember the feeling I got the, the pre-production copy of that game and I opened the box and I looked at those markers and I go, oh my God, why did you do that? And I immediately went to my computer and said, you know, this is just a huge mistake. The jury is going to, the Spiel des Jardins jury is just going to hate this. And of course, that was the comment that came out totally that like, you know, how could you produce something, this beautiful game otherwise? And they just screwed that up. So that was the kind of, and that's the kind of, you can go back to the luck thing. I mean, you know, I feel like I did everything right on that game and the company, you know, the, it probably was a good choice. They were an up and coming company and they might've, you know, they might've had a real shot at game of the year, but they just screwed up the production of the game and yeah. just destroyed the whole process. And so that's, you know, one example of like the bad things that can happen along the way. So. Yeah, it's a good point. And another good point as far as like your team and wanting to make sure that you have the best possible teammates everywhere, right? It's not just you yeah. and your co-designer, but it's also the artist, it's the graphic designer, it's the people doing the publishing yeah. and the manufacturing and the shipping because everything ultimately reflects on your game and ultimately on you. And yeah. so that's, yeah, just a, a really good word of, of caution to making sure you're you're putting the right people on the team. And so, yeah. okay, give me some advice on pitching because you you just, <laughs> you went to Europe and you're like, I got, I got all these games and publishers are like, oh, okay, here, take our money. So how... <laughs> <laughs> What's your advice on pitching games? Well, I actually think, you know, I actually think it's changed a lot from like 20 years ago to today. So the last few years where I've been showing games um, and I hadn't been showing games uh, that much in, for a while. So the last few years, I'd say there's there's several big changes for me. One is they give you a lot more feedback now than they used to. Before, you'd, you'd often send a game to somebody and they'd just send it back and there'd be no feedback, nothing. Or if you showed it in person, they would just be, oh, we're not interested in that. Today, I mean, you can sit down with a publisher and you generally get a lot of feedback. And And I'll just give Moritz uh, Brunhofer from uh, Hans of Gluck as an example. He comes over to my my event, The Gathering, all the time. And, and he'll sit there, even if he's not interested in buying the game, he will be happy to talk to you and share his ideas and his outlook about you know what he liked about the game, what he didn't. And that's great. I, I think that's really valuable um, to, as a designer. Um, I, I always tell I always tell beginning designers if you show a, a prototype to maybe four, I would say even four or five companies, and they all say no, they're right. And so you need to realize that you you need to either just get rid of that idea for a while, or go and revise it, or just you know, just leave it alone for a while and maybe come back to it if you want, or just put it in the closet and move on to something else. Because it doesn't matter if you think it's the greatest game in the world. If that many people have said no, and they usually have pretty strong reasons, 
they're they're right. And you know, and there's always going to be the exceptions to that where somebody you know had that happen and then published their own game and it did really well. But most of the time, they're going to be right because they've got their thumb on that industry and they know what you know. They they think they know what people are looking for, and a lot of times they're they're just right. And I mean, as a game designer, I, I, I say that and I almost like hate myself saying that, but, but it's true, you know? And so you just gotta, you just gotta hang with it and like, go do something else instead of work on another game. Yeah. I mean, they're in the business of making money. Like they're not telling yeah. you no yeah. for any other reason than they don't think it's going to make them and ultimately you money and it's not going to help their company pay its bills and, and make a profit. And so I think it's important. Now it might be because the game is just too, the audience is too small and so right. maybe you do go to Kickstarter and you get 500 backers and that's all that ever buy the game. But, you know, it's a, a project yep. you wanted to see come to fruition. OK, but these companies are thinking, OK, how do I sell thousands upon tens of thousands of maybe 100,000 yeah. copies of a game? And and that's kind of the mentality they they have. And so, yeah, it's very important to just kind of keep that in mind. They're not being mean to you. Like they're not trying to hurt your oh. feelings. It's, no. just, it's business. And um, I feel like with the gaming industry being as relationship oriented and kind of nice overall, and just kind of everybody's pretty helpful and pretty, you know, kind okay. for the most part, polite to each other. But then at the end of the day, it's still business. Right. And always kind of remembering that. And, you know, if, if they're going to tell, you no, they'll, they'll tell anybody, no, right. You know, you've won <laughs> awards and sold zillions of copies of stuff and they'll still tell, you no if they don't think it's a good fit. For their company, so something yeah. to definitely. Keep and I think that's that's really important for for game designers to understand is that you know you should be trying to make money and and you know there's all these really complicated games that come out and some of them occasionally you know I mean you can look at Terraforming Mars that you know it actually sells pretty good copies like way better than almost all of my games sold but most of them come out and they sell somewhere between three thousand and ten thousand copies maybe. And they just aren't financially a success. And you got to design a lot of those games like every year to make a living. So what you're really looking for is to have a game that sells really good numbers that you can live off for a year or a couple of years. I mean, that's the financial reality if you want to have any kind of lifestyle. And, you know, going forward, you want to try and build on that and get something that's, you know, and there are lots of people who publish their own games like Freedom and Frieza. I mean, he obviously sells pretty good number of games and he's able to support himself by running his own company and selling his own games. Um, and there's other people who can do it, but it's tough. It's, and, and even then, you know, then he's distracted from designing games because he's, he's running his own company, but it's, you know, being a game designer is kind of like trying to be an actor or an artist or anything else. It's, it's tough. The odds are against you. The odds are huge. Like, I think like there's, Settlers of Catan, Carcassonne, Ticket to Ride, and maybe Codenames, which it's on sort of undecided. Those four games in the last 30 years are the big hits. Those are the evergreens. That's it. I mean, that's four games in 30 years. That's what your odds are of like getting this huge evergreen that just continues to sell and sales continue to pick up after all those years. That's, those are pretty long odds. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And what would be your advice to someone who who does want to go full time? They want to get into game design as their main job. What would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, I would I would definitely try to design simpler games. Um, you know, I think what, what we're seeing from the Spiel des Jahres the last few years is they're picking sort of um, very simple family games in, in general. They're looking at those. And that's not the only thing they're looking at, but uh, and that's and the spiel isn't everything to game designers, but it's huge. Um, so I, I think you have to focus on some of that. And if you want to work on more complicated games or you want to put a game on Kickstarter, you know it takes so much effort to do that. And these complicated games, 
you know, sometimes I, I think people design games for several years, like the, you know, these complicated games come out. I can't even begin to think like, where would I start on that? It's like crazy. <laughs> you know, I try to, I try, I start with something usually that's like for me is fairly involved. And then I try to simplify it and take everything out of the game that's unnecessary. What I want is to get that game down to the simplest part that's still fun but it doesn't have any of the chrome that's on the unnecessary chrome. It's kind of the opposite of where I started at Avalon Hill. You could just put in as much chrome as you wanted and just one more rule was fine, you know, and you just kept adding stuff to make it more interesting. This is the opposite. I'm trying to take everything out of the game to bring it down to the core. That's really fun. That has the best chance to sell to the biggest audience. Cause that's what matters to me. I mean, I, when I, in 1998, when I was, went to Essen, and I stood in the Amiga booth and watched every single table, you know, people playing Elfenland. They were sitting on the floor playing Elfenland. They were sitting in the aisles playing Elfenland. And I stood there with the, the owner of Amigo, Uwe Pale, and we were both just like stunned. It was like in awe of this experience. It was just to watch that many people playing one of my games. I mean, it was just incredible. And it's it stayed with me for all that time because that's what really matters uh, as a game designer. Like I'm reaching an audience. I'm actually, you know, that's the real success. You can think that like you have number one game on BGG and that's cool. I would, I would love to have the number one game on BGG, but I care more about that royalty check I get from days of wonder every three months. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that because that tells me thousands and thousands of people are buying and playing my game. And yeah. that's pretty cool. Well, it's also important to remember that board game geek is such a small overall percentage of the people buying and playing games. And so just because you have a hit quote unquote on board game geek, and just because you're in the top 100 or top thousand, whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean you're selling copies, like hopefully, <laughs> but probably not, you know? And, and so it's, it's the games that show up in, in Walmart or show up in, in just all the random kind of big box stores. Like they're selling a ton of copies and it might be a game that people on board game geek think is terrible. Like, Oh, this game oh, yeah. is so stupid and silly and simple <laughs> and it's not fun. There's no strategy. It's all luck. And you're just rolling dice and see what happens. Yeah. But it sold 2 million copies. So, yeah. you know, it depends on your goals. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, absolutely. And, and I think if you look at, there's a company Buffalo games who, mm-hmm. you know, a few years ago, they were unknown. They were just a puzzle company and now they're the biggest puzzle company in America. And they're, they have tons of games in Target, but you know nobody really knows those games. But they but they sell really good copies, a number of copies. I mean, that's it's a totally different kind of game business than than what I've been used to. But they've been super successful. Um, but yeah, I mean, Board Game Geek. There's there's exceptions again. Like you look at Terraforming Mars. I mean, that's done well on Board Game Geek, and it's also sold a lot of copies. I think Wingspan is. I heard it sold a million copies, which is amazing to me. It's, it's just wonderful. Um, but, you know, those are few and far between. When you think about three to 5,000 new games coming out every year, again, the odds are really long of, of getting a game like that. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's, uh, that actually kind of brings us back to the, the story because now let's talk about Ticket to Ride, right? So, you know, you're getting involved with Days of, Days of Wonder. Tell me about just kind of the genesis of Ticket to Ride. Was it an idea you kind of had randomly one day or had, was it something you'd been working on for a long time? Tell me about it. Yeah, um, I was out. Uh, I used to live in Beverly, Massachusetts. And I lived about a quarter of a mile from the Atlantic Ocean. And so my general uh, day started by taking a walk along the ocean. Um, and so the night before I had played a, a railroad game that was much more complicated than Ticket to Ride. And the game had been like a, just a huge failure. Like it, it wasn't fun. 
And I don't know, I had all sorts of problems. So I was thinking about that on the walk, like I, I usually did. And I was just a little frustrated with it. And then all of a sudden, this new game this was in my head. And and as I walked along you know, by the ocean, I was thinking like, oh, my God, this is so simple. And I was like, well, what can be wrong with this? And I was like, oh, this sounds great. And so I really was designing the whole game in my head. And I couldn't wait to get And I turned back to go back home. And I couldn't wait to get back home to make the prototype. I mean, literally, like, I was so excited. And I got back and I, I, I designed that game. You know, I put that down in a couple of hours. And really, I played it maybe a couple of days later for the first time. That prototype was probably 90% of the published version. Like it didn't change much from that. So, and that almost never happens. Like basically, I would always, you know, work on my games and change them, but that was just there in my head. It was like that, you know, famous aha moment or whatever. And it was just great. And, and I still didn't know it was going to be a big hit, but I was really happy with the game the first time I play tested. And I thought, oh, that's great. And some of the tickets changed and some of the routes, you know, minor stuff like that. But the game was really there. I think I've only ever had that experience two or three times. Um, so it was pretty cool. So then I had this prototype. And um, let me just tell you a real funny story that my wife, Janet, and I remember so well. I was playing the game with, with Janet and a couple other people. And I got up from the table and a splinter came off from under the table and actually went like through my left leg, like this splinter was about like four inches long. And you would not believe that just getting up from the table, this thing could do this, but it went right through my leg. So I, and I, I had jeans on. So I was like, well, that feels weird. So I went into the bedroom and, and took my pants off. And I was like, oh my God, this piece of wood is sticking out in my leg in two places. So I had to go to the hospital. <laughs> I said, you guys keep playing. I'm going to go to the hospital. <laughs> so I went to the hospital and they took it out. It was a little bit difficult to get out. And I came back and then they were still playing the game. And I was like, okay, we'll, we'll just continue. Right? <laughs> so it's just the weirdest story. But, um, you know, that was one of the playtest sessions. They were having so much fun playing the game. But like, you know, the fact I had gone to the hospital and come back, that was just irrelevant. You know, they were having fun playing the game. So. I need to add that to uh, my own like personal process of how do I know if my game is any good? Well, if I have a medical emergency <laughs> and people still keep playing, I've That's probably got right. a good game. That's right. I mean, it's just it's crazy. I kept that splinter for a long time. I don't know if I still have it now, but it was it was pretty amazing. But yeah, so I mean, and every playtest was kind of like that. Like people would say, oh, this is really fun. And they would want to play a game. And as a game designer, you know, when you ever, whenever you play a prototype and somebody says, oh, I'd like to play it again, that's huge. I mean, because usually they're like done halfway through it or something. <laughs> um, so it was, it was great. So I took that, uh, I, I think I had met the guys from Days of Wonder, Eric Altamont and uh, Mark Kaufman. I had met them only once or twice before, like really briefly at other conventions. Um, and so I went down to the World Board Gaming Championship, WBC in Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't have any appointments with anybody, but uh, Mark and Eric were there. And they asked me, you know, do you have any prototypes? And I said, yeah, I brought a couple. And so <clears throat> we made an appointment. And then uh, those two guys and my friend Pitt Crandlemeyer, unfortunately, who's, who died a few years ago, um, the four of us sat down to play tickets right in the bar at uh, the hotel in Pennsylvania at WBC. And we, we played the game. And then we were about probably 30 or 40 minutes into the game. And Pitt had to go and play in a tournament. He says, oh, I got to go play in a tournament. 
I said, oh, that's okay. I said, these guys have probably seen enough anyway. And I wiped the board at that point. Like, oh, you know, we're done. Like Mark and Eric are like, what are you doing? What are you doing? We want to finish the game. We want... I was like, oh, I, I figured you guys had seen enough, you know. And they go, no, we were really enjoying the game. And so basically that was the sale right there. And he said, you know, I'd really like to take the prototype. I'm going to France to meet with my French partners. And I said, sure, go ahead and take it. And he called me maybe five days later and said, you know, we want to buy this. And I said, great. I said, let's do it. Um, you know, so it was almost, it was a chance that they were there. It was a chance that I was there because I really hadn't planned on going. It was a chance that I had met them, you know, at a couple of conventions uh, the year or two before. You know, everything about it was chance. And, uh, you know, that I had happened to design that game right at that and bring that prototype. Um, and that was just like a whole series of things like that started to go right. Um, they were an up and coming company. Um, they had, there was a guy named Pierre who was one of the partners and he went to Germany um, and, and basically convinced everybody in Germany that Days of Wonder could produce enough copies that if the game won the spiel that, you know, they could actually produce enough copies to meet the demand. And so he did that right. They hired, you know, the right artists for the game. Like I said, every every step along the way, they just did the right thing, and and, and I just feel incredibly, you know, grateful to all of them. There, you know, Eric and uh, and Mark left years later when they saw the game. So the Days of Wonder sold to Asmodee, so it's a new crew now. Um, Adrian Martineau is the head of Days of Wonder, and he and I are great friends. I mean, we have a great relationship. Um, all the employees from Days of Wonder just came down to visit me in New Orleans uh, a couple of weeks ago, and. And I entertained them, and and they're great. They're great crew. They're a real small crew, and you know, but I feel like you know they're just an amazing team to produce games. So, again, you know, everything along the way, like they're just doing a, a great job doing all the expansions and new products, and you know, I'm just grateful to, that they're they're doing such a great job with my game. Yeah, and you you bring up kind of an interesting point. Sometimes the universe just bends to make <laughs> everything fall into place, and it's kind of. Actually, kind of crazy. Uh, I heard an interview with Vlada Shabatel, who designed Codenames. And yeah. honestly, it was a very similar story where it was like this aha moment. And he's like, okay, here's the game. It's like 95% done. And there's no way it's 95% done, right? Like, it's got to be, there's something yeah. wrong with this, right? But no, it was good to go. And then it just fell into place. And now there's been zillions of copies and different IPs thrown onto it. And so sometimes, right. man, the universe just... uh Works out. And he's, you know, what else? He had been doing these really complicated oh, yeah. games at that yeah. point. And I was, I was amazed. Like, really, he did this? It's like, you know, he did some really good games, but all of a sudden, he's changed directions, and and that was exactly the right thing. Like, instead of saying, "Oh, you know, I'm not going to do that because that doesn't fit my style," he was smart enough, and Peter, you know, at Czech Games was smart enough to go ahead with that game. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, but also it, it speaks to what happens when you're immersed in something. Right. Because more than likely, if I'm just sitting around playing video games all day, I'm not going to, you know, magically have an idea for like the, one of the greatest game board games of all time. Like I have to be in the posture, so to speak, right, and yeah. working on yeah. things. And, you know, that's where a lot of the, the hard work comes from. It's not necessarily for that one project that like gets all the money and all the notoriety. It's like the years of foundation that went into being able to be in that position, to have those relationships, to have the creativity and the skill set and all the work ethic, all that stuff that then lightning strikes and it, it, you know, turns into something special. And so I think that's also something to remember. It's not all just magic in the universe. It's also a whole lot of hard work and foundation being built over potentially decades that, uh, that you, basically you're lighting a loaded cannon, right? It's not <laughs> this overnight thing. You were just a, an already loaded cannon waiting for the right, you know, flame to ignite it. And, yeah. and then it happens. 
Yeah, I mean, even, you know, I mean, Bobby and I spend a lot of time playing games and then, you know, afterwards talking about what we liked or didn't like and, you know, like how this designer approached something. I mean, that's that's all part of the job. I mean, you still have to do the, the work part, but, you know, playing games is is not just fun. I mean, it's really, we, we look at it and try to analyze, you know, what did we like? Why did we like it? And, you know, and and most games, I would say, you know, I would say almost all games really come from other games, at least in part. You know, there's nothing, I mean, there's a few exceptions. I would say Dungeons & Dragons was an exception. Probably Magic, it was an exception. But most games, you can clearly see, like, where they came. Like, you can see the what led up to it. And, you know, the certain, whether it's the mechanic or the theme or just the, you know, and, and people, you know, you can see the trend. I mean, today's trend is about, you know, deck builders or it's about worker placement or, you know, there's a number of mechanics out there and, and games, you know, over and over, they're using the same type of mechanics. They're just trying to bring their little twist to it. So, you know, it's all about, I mean, that's research to me. That's like analyzing, you know, what people like and what they don't like. And yeah, there's so much more to it. Yeah, it's a good point. I saw an interview with Mr. Beast, who is one of the biggest YouTubers <laughs> in the world. And he talked about how for so long, this is exactly what he did. He analyzed YouTube and he looked at the, like how kind of basically figuring out how does the algorithm work? How can I, you know, at some point make videos that tap into the algorithm to get mass appeal and, and you know, reach a mass audience. And then he did, but it took, I don't know how long, I don't know if it was a year or two, it was a while though, of him like yeah. trying to figure out the back end that, you know, how does the system work? What's the process? And then he obviously has turned into one of the biggest channels in the world. But um, all right, let's switch gears a little bit. Well, Tell me. Well, just like, let me say, I, I, I just got sort of, you know, I didn't know who he was, it was like a few months ago, but like I heard he made $54 million in 2020. I mean, yeah. and there are all these people out there, they want to be influencers. I hate that term, but it's like, but they, you know, they want to be sort of like, not really do anything, but they want to make, be successful. They want to be a star, right? right? But this guy has really done it. I mean, he has like 60 employees and he's making $54 million. He was playing poker. I'm a big poker player. He was playing poker and like flipping for half a million dollars in poker plots. pots. I mean, the guy is incredible. Yeah. And and I think, I think it's good to look at him as an example because he's, he's not cursing like so many people like on the, you know, on their, on these vlogs and stuff, they're cursing and they're, they're in this, you know, they just sound like idiots, a lot of them. You know, this guy, he's very pleasant. He's likable. Duh. You know, isn't this what you should be, right? So he's done so many right things. And he was a, he was a young kid. He was like 12 or 13 when he started doing this. And I think he's a great example of, of what you should do, right? He's just, he followed his dream, but he did it, you know, he did it in a really great way. And now he's so successful. He's helping all his friends now. I mean, he's, he's an awesome personality. Yeah, absolutely. If if I'm going to give anybody on YouTube money to do something, he's probably the guy, right? He's so humble. Yeah. He's kind. Yeah. He does cool things and, and so nice to people. Yeah, that's a really good point of people. I feel like everyone's okay with him being successful. Like there's a lot of people on the internet. You're like, oh, I can't believe they're rich. I can't believe they're famous. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. But him, you're like, yeah, that's, that's cool. I'm, I'm good with him being rich and famous and, and having I agree. more influence. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go back to Ticket to Ride. So tell me about the process of designing another version I don't know how many versions of Ticket to Ride there are. There's quite a few at this point. I mean, you've got 133 Board Game Geek listings, and I know a bunch of those are Ticket to Ride. And so what's the process for designing Ticket to Ride Europe, Ticket it's, to Ride New York? Like so many different, obviously, you're never going to run out of places. I mean, there's every country and every city in the world you could do, I guess. But like, how do you make it 
distinctive enough where people are like, okay, I already own one version, but this is different enough, good enough. Let me own this other version too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a tribute to the, you know, that we consider two base games. The Europe and the U.S. are both kind of base games in their in their own uh, in their own hemisphere. So, yeah, it's it's. I mean, to be honest with you, it's really easy now to design tickets right expansions. I love doing it, um, but it's it's pretty easy. I'll never run out of ideas because there's just and this is the thing. Like, I had no idea that the system was so flexible. Like, it's just so easy to add things to it. Um, and it just seems to be, you know, endlessly, you know, the, the, the just the limits. There are no limits. You can just add anything to it. Um, so it's really fun to do that. And I'm always trying to – I have to balance, like, I don't want to make it too complicated, but I want to make it interesting and different. And so every time we work on a game, it's a little harder with the city editions because we try to put in one little rule. It's much harder to add in that one rule than it is on an expansion to start with something and, you know, have something different. And, yeah, I mean, there's so many things in the works at the moment. Um, you know, San Francisco is the latest city game. Um, Northern Lights is basically taken Nordic countries from a two or three player game and made it into a two to five player game. And that was a, you know, we, when we started out, we said, Oh, can we make a few changes and just make it a five player game? And when I sat down and tried to do that, I was like, no way. I said, this is just, the board just doesn't work. So we had to make some really big changes to the game. Um, so it took a lot longer than I expected. I figured like that would take me, you know, just as much, no time at all. But like this, that was actually a pretty good project. Um, but like designing a, a new map, I mean, Adrian, Adrian Martineau and I usually, you know, talk about it and he has an idea of like what map he wants. And then he sort of a lot of times will actually even give me like what cities he wants on the map. And so we'll start that way and then I'll fill in the network and then I'll just I'll, you know, I'll try to come up with whatever the special rules are. So we work really to get well together on that. Um, but what's more exciting for me is some of the new products that are coming. And this is where it's hard to talk about some of them. But Bobby West and I. I've designed uh, one new Ticket to Ride product, which I love. I mean, it's I just think it's it's really cool, and it's not it's not going to be new to the game world. It's just new for Ticket to Ride. And then two other designers who I can't even tell you, and I worked for three years on a Ticket to Ride game that will be coming out in the next couple of years. Um, Ticket to Ride Legacy. <laughs> I can't I can't uh, admit <laughs> or deny that, <laughs> but it's been a long it's been a long time and. Uh, you know, I'm super excited about it, and and it would have been out by now. The pandemic has just uh, has just delayed everything. So, um, so that's I'm real excited about that. And and there's a lot of tickets ride products coming out now that I don't have anything to do with. I mean, there's like a puzzle book, and there's a um, what else is there? There's the little plastic uh, puzzle game, and there's all sorts of things like that coming out. I'm sort of peripherally involved in some of those, and not involved in others. Um, so that's that's pretty fun, um, yeah. But to design the actual expansions is is easy, and like I said before, it's very rewarding because I know I'm working on it. I know it's going to sell you know X number of copies for sure. I mean, San Francisco, the latest city game, I think, is a Target exclusive for a couple of months, which means they're going to take you know fifty, hundred, hundred fifty thousand copies to start, and then two months later, it's going to be open to everybody and it's going to sell, you know, that number of copies to everybody else. So it's huge. I mean, it's, you know, back in the old days, I would have games that I design and they come out and they sell two or 3,000 copies, you know, and now we're talking like 100,000 copies as the initial print runners. Yeah. It's, it's a big difference. Yeah. Has your design 
strategy or design process changed that much along the way? Like from when you were designing games that sold just a few thousand now to, you know, I mean, Ticket to Ride sold over a million, two million, I think, copies. Anyway, a ton. So what has, I guess, better question, what has changed about your design process over the years, you know, now that you're <laughs> doing different numbers? Yeah, I mean, some of it's the, the actual, you know, the actual things you work with. I mean, when I started out, I was using like Elmer's glue and like going to a photocopy shop and making, you know, copies. You know, then the, one of the big inventions for me was glue stick. You know, glue stick was huge <laughs> just to be able to, you know, to. And now, I mean, now I do. And, and it hasn't been that recently. I mean, it has been fairly recently that I just started doing everything on the computer. Now I use Illustrator. I'm not, I'm not a high tech person, believe me. And, uh, you know, but I use Illustrator and InDesign and, and stuff like that. And so I do the maps. Um, I do tickets ride all on the computer and then print everything. So it's, whereas before, like I made, I made the Elfinland board. I made color photocopies of Elfin roads and stuck little pieces of paper to make the Elfinland board. I mean, literally the prototype was probably 500 little pieces of paper that I glued down to make the different board. And that took me like two weeks, literally just to put that board down. Like now I can make a city map in probably an hour of Ticket to Ride. And, and you know, then I, I have to generate the tickets obviously and generate the special rules. But the whole process of how to make the prototype is so much simpler now. It's, it's amazing. And I wish I was better at Illustrator and I've watched people and I'm always astounded at how many things they know that I don't know. Um, and I probably should go take a course at some point, but you know, I'm old and I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it's changed completely. I mean, just com being able to print stuff out of computers. I mean, Avery has all these labels. So if you need to, I, here, I'll tell you a great story is, is years ago, I wanted some blank cards and it was always a struggle to find blank cards. So U.S. Game Systems had told me they had a bunch of blank cards with different backs. I thought, oh, that's going to be great. So I thought I ordered 20,000 blank cards. When they came this one day, it was raining and the UPS truck pulls up and he says, I've got like eight boxes that weigh like 80 pounds each. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm so glad you're here. I was afraid I was going to have to put them in plastic and leave them on the porch. It turned out I ordered 200,000 cards because I did the math wrong. <laughs> so he brings all these boxes in. I couldn't believe it. And there was like 50 different backs. It was great. You had like red backs, blue backs, checkered backs. It was great. I still have tons of those. I was going to say, you're still using those in your prototypes, I guess. Oh, of course. I called up Richard Borg. I said, do you want some of these? He said, yeah. He said, so I, I don't know, maybe a third of them I repackaged. And so the UPS guys because turns up a few days later. He says, I just saw this invoice. This isn't those, those packages again. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I said, I got to get rid of this. <laughs> so he was all bummed that he had to take like three 80 pound boxes back. And take <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've, I, that was, when was that? That was like the early 1990, no, probably middle, middle 1990s. I did that. I still have tons of them. And I just, I gave some away this year at the gathering. I gave a bunch to Bobby, and I still have like tons of boxes, more than I'll ever use in my lifetime. So it's really funny. <laughs> but but that was kind of a, a breakthrough too. Before that, I was like, you know, how do you make cards, right? It was like you couldn't go, you could either use like a regular deck of cards and stick something down on it. Um, but now I have all these blank back cards. You just print out an Avery label sheet and, you know, cut them out and you put them on the cards and they look really nice and they, they work really good. They're nice card, 
quality cards for prototypes. Yeah. Labels were a huge find for me as well when I could print off an eight and a half by 11 you know, sticker basically, yeah. and then just slap that on a board and then, yeah. Oh, I need to change the locations. I need to change the routes or the numbers, whatever. Okay. Let me just edit it a little bit, print off a new one and then just stick it right over top of it, man. It made everything so much faster and yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah, highly recommend stickers and labels for, for that reason. Um, uh, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about play testing. What are you looking for? And, and has it changed, you know, whether you're play testing a new ticket to ride type game expansion or something like that, or, or a, a different, game what are you looking for how do you know obviously if like we said earlier if you have a medical medical emergency and people still play it that's a good way to know it's a good game but other than that what uh like during a play test what are you looking at how do you know okay this game is actually pretty good yeah i mean my number one philosophy about play testing is i don't like to make people suffer so if if i play a prototype for the first time you know after five or ten minutes if it's not fun i just say oh you know we're done i've gotten the information i need and, and i stop um but I, I generally want people just to play the game. I mean, sometimes people have great ideas, and that's that's really good. But I think sometimes people, you know, it, good playtesters for me are people who just play the game, and then afterwards we can talk a little bit and get some feedback. If people are constantly trying to break the game or trying to, you know, trying to get involved in the design, that's not really helpful for me. That's not what I want. So a lot of times, and I've seen this with other people, like a lot of times people are – they're so invested. They want to be involved, you know, and, and that's, I understand that. Um, <clears throat> but like, that's not really what I want. I want, I want to play it and see what works and what doesn't work. And then we can talk about it. If people have ideas, I'm willing to listen. Um, so it's, I think that's kind of always the way it's been with me. Um, I remember, I, I remember playing Santa Fe. I, I don't know. One of the first times I played Santa Fe and we got done with the game and it was, <clears throat> it was okay. And one of the guys said to me, he said, you know, he says, I really think it needs intermediate goals. And even though that sounds like kind of a vague comment, that was a great comment because I thought about that later and said, that's exactly what it needs, you know. And so I went back and put in these intermediate goals. And the next time I played it, I was like, oh, wow, that's really, that's way better. And that was, that was good. That was an insight that I probably wouldn't have had on my own. So, so that's good. Um, but a lot of times you just want to get the experience of, um, you know, having a complete game and see how long it takes, see how complicated it was, um, you know, see if the rules you, you, how you explain the rules, if that's worked, there's so much that goes into it. And, and for me generally, like I said, I don't, I don't like people to suffer. So if the prototype isn't what I wanted, you know, my head, when I play a game in my head, everything's the greatest game, you know, in the world, it's just awesome. Right. But then when you actually sit down and play with people, it's never that. And so I, it, it has to be sort of a certain, I don't know what the percentage is, if it's 50% or more, but it has to sort of be some percentage of that great game in my head for me to even continue working on it. If it's just crap, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'll just give it up at that point or else really revise it and try to think about it again. Um, so, yeah, so the first playtest is huge for me. Um, I think that out of that, it's like, it, it goes into three categories. It's, you know, it's just not worth doing anymore with it's, it's going to go sit, you know, until I can have a better idea for it, or I have some ideas to revise it now. I mean, I think those are the three categories. And once in a while, you know, the game is, is like 90% there. And that's, you know, that's the real special moment. So. Yeah. I've told a lot of new designers that uh, no prototype survives first contact with the table. 
Like it's just not going <laughs> to happen. Like it is such the best idea since Monopoly in your head. And then you prototype it. And even the process of prototyping, you a lot of times can go, oh, this is not what I thought. This is not going to be as good as I thought. But then, yeah, that first play test, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't. I didn't know that it was that bad, you know, and that happens pretty regularly. <laughs> but uh, tell me, like I was talking to Richard Launius years ago and I asked him, I said, how many ideas, you know, have you had over the years? Because he's been designing games for decades as well. How many games have you had ideas for over the years that just never turned into anything? And he's like, oh, I don't know, man, thousands. I was like, yeah. well, and, you know, and this was years ago. This is kind of back when I was still early on in my game design journey and figuring out publishing and printing games and stuff like that. And so I thought that was kind of crazy. And I, I've had other people in, in the community say, oh, wow, that was a big moment. To Even Richard Launius has had thousands of ideas that were not any good. I ask you the same question. You know, decades of work now. Lots of games have come and gone. You've sold lots of games. you made lots of money off games. But how many ideas have come out, even, and like full-fledged ideas, like prototypes and playtests and, and that kind of thing? Give me a ballpark number. How many ideas wow. that, that you've had that turned I out mean, to be just nothing? Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine. But here's here's what I'll tell you. I took Bobby West down to my storage room like a few months ago. And um, and there were all these, I have like plastic bins through full of prototypes that, you know, have never been published and never will and things. And he's looking, you know, he's looking through the bin saying, what's this one? And I go, I don't know. I have no idea what that is. He says, what's this one? You know, because they've all got titles on them or something like that. And he says, well, we should look through those. And I said, Bobby, I said, probably most of them don't even have rules. So yeah. I wouldn't even be able to know, like, what the game is anymore. It's Let just, the like, dead bury of... the dead, Bobby. Just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so the number of prototypes down in the basement is probably 100 plus you know, that have never been published and never will. The number of ideas, I mean, I don't generally save like um, just sheets of paper that have ideas and stuff. I do write stuff down, but I, I, you know, you just can't, there's too much and it doesn't, it doesn't really help you. And and when I do, when the ones I do save, I go, go back and look at it and I go, I have no idea what I was talking about back then. I don't even know what that means. Right. And so it's, but certainly, you know, like thousands of ideas for sure. And, and most of them bad, you know, right. <laughs> or most of them that, you know, just were never going to be good ideas. But, um, yeah, I mean, I try to I try to save, you know, there are some that I would love to go back and work on even now, even if they're 10 or 20 years old. But it's it's hard to find the time to do that when there's so many new ideas coming out all the time. And, right. and I just have, you know, right now, I, I my life is sort of a ba- I try to balance my life because I'm. I want to enjoy my life. And so I, if I wanted to, I could just work full time. I don't think I'd have the energy to do that, but I could certainly work full time on game designs with Bobby and other people and Ticket to Ride. But I don't want to do that. I want to enjoy my life well. So I'm always kind of fighting to, you know, free up as much time as I can to do other things. I'm going out to play in the World Series of Poker in a few weeks. and I'm super excited about that. And I just want to like, okay, everything else goes to the back burner. I want to really concentrate on that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, but, you know, I say that, but then I'll be, you know, sitting at the poker table or walking around uh, the strip or whatever in Vegas, and I'll be thinking about games and thinking about ideas. And, and so it's just, if you're a game designer, that's what you do. I mean, everything in my life is sort of relates to games somehow, because I'm always, it can always, it can always be the next great idea. You know, you're walking down the street, you see something, or, you know, you're thinking about something and, all of a sudden there's an idea for a game in your head. I mean, that's right. just the way my life's been. Yeah. And I've talked to so many game designers with a similar 
realization about their brains. It's like, it's a switch. You just can't turn off. Like, even if you yeah. want to, you, you just can't, and there's always ideas for new game ideas or, or you see something you're like, Oh, I bet that would make a, make an interesting game or an interesting system. Yeah. Or it's just, just the way it is. And also I heard a guy say, I don't know, some years ago. And he said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And what he meant by that was like, you have to grow, you have to learn, you have to do it really poorly and have bad ideas and have things turn out just terrible to then grow and get better and figure it out and get the skill set you need and the practice that you need and the training and all that. And so I thought that was really helpful for any new creative person. It's like when you start off, it's it's going to be bad, but it's worth it, right? It's, it's worth doing it badly for a while, maybe a long time, to eventually have something really good come out of yeah, it. Yeah, I think you have to be good at rejection. I mean, yeah. as starting out as a game designer, you know, you're going to hear no a lot. And, and so you have to, you know, be a little thin-skinned about that and just think like, okay, you know, my ideas are good. I just haven't, you know, I haven't done, the, I haven't found the right formula yet or I haven't found the right combination. Yeah, yeah. you got to be good at that. Yeah, and also like separating your value as a person and to yourself from your work that is being rejected. Like they're not rejecting you. They're not saying, hey, you're a terrible person. Uh, they're saying this is a terrible thing or a bad idea and, and kind of separating that, which is very difficult, uh, especially when you get so wrapped up in things, but, um, yeah, it's your baby, you yeah. know, you, you, yeah, it's your baby and you want to see it succeed. You know, I think that's why so many people publish games on Kickstarter because mm -hmm. they're convinced that their baby is, you know, is special. And, and I think that's great. It's, it's a great way to start, you know, and I don't know if people lose money or they make money all the time. I, I, I can't imagine that they, they all make money. So yeah. it's a good way to start and just give you that financial reality too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would say there's more loss than gain with Kickstarter. Cause I mean, you know, you go in there, you, you have 300 backers, which, Hey, there's 300 people in the world that want to buy your thing and, and see it come to life, but you're not going to be able to build a long-term sustainable company off of just a few hundred people. Uh, right. typically. And unless you sell a digital roll and write where it's just a PDF. Okay. Hey, that works out pretty well. But when you get into manufacturing and shipping nowadays, which is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's hard, but, um, but you don't know until you start and everybody started off selling just a handful and then it turns, you know, into something bigger than that. This, this podcast, I was like, if I can just get 10 people to listen to the show, that'll be doing fine. And if I can just do some episodes and then here we are 300 episodes, 2 million plus downloads later, it's like, Oh, Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so you got to start somewhere, but uh, all right. Yeah. As, we, as we kind of wrap things up, what would be just some advice to game designers in general? We've talked about lots of different things, but any like little tips or tricks or anything that you would tell new, new game designers, or just game designers in general to help them along in their own journeys. Yeah. I, I really think uh, we'll go back to something I said earlier that like, if you think about what, you know, what are the big hits or at least what games really are selling well and just think about like, where they are. I mean, I think when I look at the game of the year nominations this year, like Scout is one of the game, nominated games this year. I love Scout. It's probably one of my 10 favorite games right now. And what it, what it is, is when you play that first game of Scout, you think, oh, it's really simple. There's no strategy to it until there's a little breakthrough moment in the game where you realize that there's a lot more strategy to it. And the way we've been playing is not the, if you want to win, it's not the way, the best way to win. And so just to be a little more specific, like in Scout, you're, it's a ladder game where if you play one card, somebody else has to play either a higher card or two of a kind or three of a kind, something like that. And that's the way you think the game is. But what the game is really about is making a run. So because if you can make a run of like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, play it down and nobody else can beat it, the hand ends immediately. Your cards are, are no points. Everybody else's hand of cards is negative points. 
And at some point that happens when you're playing and you think, oh, no, that's a brilliant strategy. And it's just like so disguised in the game. I was so I was just like so in awe of that. Like the first time I saw that happen, I was like, no, this isn't that simple game. I thought it is. It's really clever. And yet it's so simple to play. I mean, I just think it's like it's brilliant to me. It's it's sort of like continues in a weird way. It continues from Love Letter. Love Letter, I thought, like, here's a game with 16 cards, but it's so amazing. Every every game is different, and it's just interesting, and it's strategic. But 16 cards, I was like, that's amazing. And so Scout sort of has that same feel to me, that it's a game, you know, just a simple deck of cards that you play and you think is really easy, but you as you play it more and more, you see the strategy in it. And I love that. So I, as a game designer, I look at that and think, like, yeah, I would love to have a game like Love Letter or Scout. I mean... And, and then the other type of game that's really seems to do well right now is um, like Repos uh, had just one where this really simple car party game. It's based on basically just one rule. Like, you know, you show your thing. And so Clover is, was also nominated or was recommended this year. Same type of game. Um, and Repos had another game uh, is having a new game. I played the prototype recently. Same thing, which is a real simple family game. So I think as a designer, you have to look at that and say, you know, that's that's where the money is right now. And like, let's look at that and try to do that. You can you can do work on the more complicated games if you want to, but like work on something that you think has a chance to sell to a bigger audience because that might give you two or three years worth of income, and then you can you know have that breathing room to like work on something something else that you can you know take more of a chance. It's sort of like you know, do what you think is going to make you some money and then try to, you know, spend that time doing something else to make your reputation or get your style going or, you know, have somebody say, oh, that's a, you know, that's a, um, a Ryan Canizia game or whatever, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard. It's a balance, you know, because otherwise you're going to be a poor starving artist, poor starving game designer the whole, your whole life. And that's, that's not a good existence. It's okay for a while, but when you get into your thirties or forties, it gets pretty old. <laughs> so. yeah. And it kind of harkens to something I tell, tell my kids all the time. It's like, do what you got to do and then do what you want to do. Yeah. Right. But, but you got to take care of the, the stuff you got to do first. You know, you, yeah. you can't just lay around watching TV, playing video games all day. That's stuff you want to do, but there's a whole bunch of stuff you got to do first. And, and, Earn, yeah. earn it, you know, get to a place where you can do those things that are a little more fun. Oh, Alan, this has been excellent. Uh, what you got game. I know you got games coming out. Anything you want to shout out, you want to talk about, want to tell people that's coming out in the near future. Yeah. I mean, Bobby and I've had, um, we're, we're working with uh, Sean Brown and Mr. B games. Um, we're real excited about, uh, and it's so funny because this game, it, it actually existed before uh, Quacks of, I can never remember what the name of that Quin, game is. Quinlanburg? Quinlanburg? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, so this prototype existed before then, um, and it's, so it's a draw chips out of the bag type of game. I, I love that type of game. And so I, I love this game, and, and Sean, Sean Brown, Mr. B Games, is super excited about it. And I think it's going to be on Kickstarter later this year. Um, Bobby and I, it's, and we've, it, it was sort of, more complicated and we've whittled it down to, you know, the basics and I just love it. And Sean has done such a great job on the production and the development. So we're real excited about that. Um, the other thing I'm super excited about is um, Union Pacific. Um, I had sold a new version of Union Pacific to a company, the pandemic hit, and now I've got the game back. So I'm sort of shopping it around. And I think I have a 
you know, several companies interested in that. It's uh, I don't ever really like to do the same version of a game. I like to change it a little bit. So I love the new version. Um, one of the companies I'm talking about wants to do it as Union Pacific and the new version, sort of double-sided map, which would be fine. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, like I said, there's some really cool uh, tickets to products coming out next year that are different. Um, I hope, hopefully they'll be out next year. Like the production is just screwed. The pandemic and the whole production problem has just really messed things up. Yeah. Um, and Bobby and I sold a game. I don't know. We had, this company had the game for four four years or so. We just signed a contract like six months ago. I don't know when that's ever going to come out, but I love the game and I hope it does come out eventually. But um, so there's a there's a lot of things going on. Bobby and I are working on with Daryl on folding space, which you know we had sold to Maple um, before Maple went out of business. We've continued to work on that game for several years. Um, we're now showing it around to lots of companies. It's changed quite a bit um, and really fun game. I, I, I'm i sure it'll sell to somebody and I hope, uh, you know, it'll come out fairly soon. It's uh, it, it's really fun. I, I don't think I've ever worked as much as I've worked on this game. Uh, it's, uh, and it's, but it's again, it continues to be fun. I mean, working with Daryl and Bobby on this has been super fun. We're just kind of to the point like, no, we need to decide what the version is and like to finally sell it. You know? So, so there's there's lots of stuff going on. I would work on, you know, I've got tons of other games I could work on. It's just, I mean, like I said, I'm trying to restrict it to, you know, keep keep you know enough of my life so that I can enjoy the rest of my life too. But it's yeah. hard. Yeah, it's a really good point. Well, Alan, this has been awesome. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with all the many projects you're working on and everything else you got going on right now. Well, thanks a lot, Gabe. It was really fun. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?